Welcome to a Bible study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel. This is a recording that I do of a weekly Monday night Bible study every Monday night at 7.30 at St. Timothy Catholic Church in Laguna Niguel. If you're interested in joining us live, please email me and let me know or just show up in person. We'd love to have you. But without further ado, enjoy this recording of a Bible study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel. Let's begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Thank you, Jesus, for the gift of this evening together. Thank you for the opportunity to be in community, and especially to be in your word. We thank you, Lord, for the gift of your spirit being with us tonight, guiding us, giving us the gifts of wisdom and knowledge, understanding and helping us to hear your voice speaking to each one of us individually through the words of sacred scripture. You knew that we would all be here tonight, and so we place ourselves in a posture of receptivity with open ears and open hearts, ready to receive whatever you have in store for us. Bless us each in the ways we most need it. Remove any worries or distractions, any anxieties, doubts, or fears from our minds and hearts, anything that may be drawing us away from this place being fully present here. And we ask, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would fill us from head to toe, heal us, bring hope and comfort in the areas where we are feeling doubt or brokenness, and help us to know you are with us tonight, Lord. Guide us in our reading of the word and in our discussion with one another. We pray all of these things in your most precious name, Jesus. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Great to have all of you here another Monday night together. We are in Luke chapter 18. Verses 1 through 8. So the setting for this week's gospel happens a little bit after the gospel we heard this past week, where Jesus heals the ten lepers, only one comes back to thank him. It happens to be a Samaritan. So you remember the setting was that Jesus was passing through the area between Galilee and Samaria. Okay, So he's still in the northern area of Israel. He's making his way down to Jerusalem where he's going to die uh, to offer his life for us on the cross. And so he's now still in that same place, okay? Same setting. He hasn't traveled onward. There's no indication of that in the text. So he's still in that place where he healed those lepers. Um, And he's there with the disciples and with some Pharisees who have traveled to that region to hear him teach, trying to catch him or question him in some way to discredit him. So that's still the audience. That's still the setting uh, for this particular passage. Now, what happens in between last week's gospel and this reading is that the Pharisees ask Jesus, when will we know when the kingdom of God is going to come? And then he says, you're not going to know. And the kingdom of God is already here. It's already at hand because Jesus is here with us. And then he turns to his disciples and he kind of doubles down and says, when the kingdom of God or when the day of the Lord comes, you will not know. You will not be able to know. You will not be able to predict it is essentially what he says. And then right after that section is when we have this parable. And this parable leads into the next parable, which is our our reading for next Sunday. We're obviously not going to read it yet, but these kind of all go together uh, in Jesus, Jesus kind of elaborating on his answer. So just remember that, that they've just asked Jesus about like the kingdom of God, when it's going to be at hand, the day of the Lord, all these things they've been long awaiting, these very apocalyptic things that they think that they might be able to predict. And Jesus is saying, you're not going to have any idea what it happened, what, when it's going to happen. So what should you do? He offers this parable, okay? So we're in Luke 18, verses 1 through 8. 
First time through, just get a picture for what is being said. Then Jesus told them a parable about the necessity for them to pray always without becoming weary. Jesus said, There was a judge in a certain town who neither feared God nor respected any human being. And a widow in that town used to come to him and say, Render a just decision for me against my adversary. For a long time, the judge was unwilling, but eventually he thought, while it is true that I neither fear God nor respect any human being, because this widow keeps bothering me, I shall deliver a just decision for her, lest she finally come and strike me. The Lord said, pay attention to what the dishonest judge says. Will not God then secure the rights of his chosen ones who call out to him day and night? Will he be slow to answer them? I tell you, he will see to it that justice is done for them speedily. But when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So an interesting parable of Jesus. We have an unexpected character um, kind of being in the position of authority, a position we might think is the position of uh, the one being the example of how God acts. Uh, And so the second time, pay attention, see if there's any particular word or phrase that stands out to you for any reason. Doesn't necessarily have to do anything with interpreting the passage or understanding it, but maybe just a word jumps off the page to you. So try as we listen the second time to listen and hang on to just the words. You've already maybe have a picture of this in your mind. Now really focus on the words as they're read. See if anything jumps off the page, resonates with you for any reason. And start to reflect on that. How is God speaking to you through that? Why is that standing out to you? What might God be saying to you through that particular word or phrase? Second, final time through, Luke chapter 18, starting in verse 1. Then Jesus told them a parable about the necessity for them to pray always without becoming weary. Jesus said, There was a judge in a certain town who neither feared God nor respected any human being. And a widow in that town used to come to him and say, Render a just decision for me against my adversary. For a long time the judge was unwilling, but eventually he thought, While it is true that I neither fear God nor respect any human being, because this widow keeps bothering me, I shall deliver a just decision for her, lest she finally come and strike me. The Lord said, Pay attention to what the dishonest judge says. Will not God then secure the rights of his chosen ones who call out to him day and night? Will he be slow to answer them? I tell you, He will see to it that justice is done for them speedily. But when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So take a few moments, reflect back on those things that stood out to you, any details that resonated with you, any questions this reading posed. And we're going to take a few minutes, five or ten minutes, for you to share those things at the tables you're at, what stood out to you and why, what questions you have about this, thoughts on the reading. 
and then we'll bring it back to the larger group. If you're watching or listening to this, please do that in whatever way you would like in comments or things like that. But for those of us here, uh, it'll take about the next five or 10 minutes to do that at the tables you are sitting at. Love to hear what are some of the things that are standing out for you in this passage, some of the questions that this passage is um, inspiring within you. Or is it all straightforward and we can just go home? Yeah, Greg. I have a problem like, towards the bottom. Yes. Pay attention to what the dishonest judge says. And so this is thinking in terms of the last judgment for me. Okay. Will not God then secure the rights of his chosen ones who call out to him day and night? Will he be slow to answer them? Present tense. Mm -hmm. I tell you, he will see to it that justice is done for them speedily. But when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Mm -hmm. So I'm trying to see the connection between those two. Or is the former strictly in terms of day-to-day -day life? And then Jesus coming later on, the last judgment? Completely separate thing. Yeah, so when the title Son of Man is invoked there, that's an Old Testament title. You find it in Daniel chapter 7, and uh, verses 13 through 14 specifically, and all throughout Daniel and Ezekiel in particular. And it's a title that Jesus most often uses for himself. Other people call him the Messiah, the Son of God, teacher, rabbi. When he's talking about himself, he almost always calls himself the Son of Man. And what that would invoke is a very kind of apocalyptic image of one coming on the clouds, the righteous one on a throne coming to redeem Israel. But this was a promise of the Messiah that was going to come. It wasn't a promise about the, the end of the world. It was a promise about the power of God coming like he had at the time of Exodus when he came as a pillar of fire and a pillar of smoke and led the people out through plagues out of Egypt. So it was kind of a promise of this supernatural presence and power of God coming to reinstate the nation of Israel, to reunify them, to make them a powerful nation again. And so it's not as much about the end of the world as it is about this messianic expectation. Um, and you have to remember, when this is written, Luke is writing to a group of Christians. Luke writes probably about 25 to 30 years after Jesus rose from the dead. That's when Luke writes his gospel, 20 to 30 years. And so at this time, Christians are being heavily persecuted. And they thought that Jesus was going to come back within their lifetime. They believed it. So they were waiting and waiting, and then all of a sudden, things are getting worse. It's very difficult to be a Christian. They're being persecuted. They're being killed. And they're kind of having this expectation, like, when is this going to happen? Like, when is Jesus going to come back already? And so Luke is framing this parable as a reminder to the people that if you're persistent in prayer and you recognize how just and loving God is, he will not be slow to answer your prayers. So it's kind of a encouraging parable to sustain them through the trials they're going through right now. But it does carry with it a lot of that apocalyptic imagery that we would associate with end times because that was what the Son of Man prophecies were kind of characterized as in the Old Testament. Yeah. Other uh, questions, comments, things that stood out to you? Yes. We talked about persistence. Yes. That was a big word. Luke said his word for the year is persistence. Mm. Uh, that really, oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. 
I mean, that really is the, the crux of this passage. It's about being persistent in prayer. Next week's gospel is about marrying with that, also being humble in your prayer. Because it's not just about praying a lot. It's not just about doing all of the prayerful things over and over again, saying the right prayers, this and that. It's about making sure that you are approaching God humbly in prayer, understanding that you're not saying certain prayers over and over again just to get God's attention, but that we are persistent in prayer, not because it changes God, but because it changes us, right? So you would kind of uh, maybe mistakenly assume by this passage that if you pray for something hard enough, you can change God's mind, right? But that's not true. And that's not how we're meant to interpret this, okay? God is unchanging in his desire to love us and to pour out good in our lives. So what then does this passage teach us? It's, I don't know if you remember this. A few weeks ago, several weeks ago maybe, we had that uh, parable of the dishonest steward. Okay? And the dishonest steward is praised, right? for exercising prudence with dishonest wealth, for use, exercising prudence in the areas of the things he had influence in to try and help himself out of a bad situation. And he's praised, and we, we think of like, okay, well, is God dishonest then? Like, are we applying this to God? And there was, there's a philosophical principle, I mentioned it that time. It's a method of reasoning or argument, arguing called argumentum a fortiori is the name for it in Latin. And it's argument for the, from the stronger reason. And what that means is you give a smaller example of something and you say, if this is true in this situation, how much more will it be true in this stronger situation? So in this sense, what we're saying is if even an unjust judge who's totally corrupt totally self-absorbed, has no respect for anyone, can render justice in this circumstance, how much more so will a perfectly loving and just God always render justice for you when you ask? And even when you don't ask, he's still trying to do that in your life. That's what this is kind of painting the picture of. So it's not that we're meant to kind of have this idea that if I'm persistent in prayer, if I ask something enough, that God will eventually relent and give me what I want. Lamborghini, 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 Lamborghini. Like, no, it's not how it works, right? But as I've mentioned before, St. Augustine used to, to uh, say that sometimes God allows us to wait. He asks us to wait for things so our heart can grow and swell to the size that we are now able to receive what he has in store for us. Sometimes that ability to receive what God has in store for us can only come from the longing that's created by waiting. It's just like if you, if a parent were to give a child everything they asked for right when they asked for it, they would probably become a very kind of spoiled, bratish child, right? They would never think that they had to work for anything, wait for anything. They would always get what they wanted. And that's not good parenting. Right? Yes, right? Am I doing something wrong with my kids? Okay, yeah, we're all in agreement. Okay. I'm like, am I, am I being a little too harsh here? Okay. But when we withhold certain things, when we put things up as like something to work toward, rather than just always giving what they want when they want it, then they understand the value of things like hard work, patience, diligence, persistence. And that is more of a blessing than it would be if we were to just get everything that we thought we needed in the moment we asked for it. So that is kind of what this is alluding to. So the, the unjust judge is not meant to give us any kind of characterization of who God is. He's a very, he's like the poorest example 
That's why this parable is so effective. He's the poorest example that still would render justice. So every example above that, and God is so far above, he's the most above, will obviously also grant justice in any situation. That's what this is trying. That's how this parable is trying to argue the justice of God. Does that make sense? No? I'm curious, as, as we read this, how many of you, by show of hands, <clears throat> on a regular basis, pray for God's justice or judgment in your life? Okay, not many of us. Yeah, this is not, this is not a common thing, right? Right? And what's interesting is if you read the Psalms and you read like rabbinical literature about the Jews, the Jews love praying for judgment and justice. They prayed for it all the time because they knew they were the chosen people of God and that God was on their side. That's why they always prayed for justice. Because even when they were doing something wrong, they knew that if they repented and if they were being oppressed, if they were being persecuted, God would come and deliver them from oppression, from their enemies, he would come and save them. He would bring them out of the exodus, bring them out of exile, bring them out of Roman oppression, whatever it is. They had confidence that that would happen. And so for the Jews, if you imagine like a courtroom, you know, they were always kind of like the, the plaintiff, like aggressively going against this person who had done something wrong against them, trying to get justice. As Christians, we tend to be like the defendant. And what we ask for is not justice, we ask for mercy, right? How many Catholics pray for mercy in the room? A lot. There we go. There's the mercy and forgiveness, right? Isn't that interesting? Because nothing, God didn't change, right? God didn't change. And, just, and Jesus preaches equally about justice as he does mercy. He has many moments of righteousness and uh, anger against hypocrisy as he does mercy, love, and healing to people. He's very balanced in that regard. You know, just you mentioned something. You know, I don't pay for for judgment as often as you said because it's terrifying to me. Yes, I would never pass that perfect test. Mm -hmm. It's just impossible. So I'd rather avoid that. Subject. Yeah, yeah. But the Jews wouldn't, even though they knew they weren't perfect. They still understood, like we're the chosen people of God. And for us, like Jesus says in uh, John fifteen sixteen, it was not you who chose me, but I who chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit that would remain. Jesus chose us. We are an extension. The Jews are still the chosen people, but we are an extension of that covenant as redemption came through the Jewish people for the whole world, as it was always promised from the covenant of Abraham in Genesis. We're part of that now. God has chosen us. And it even says here, God then, uh, will not God then secure the rights of his chosen ones? In Greek, eklekton, the elect, still a word that we use for those who go through RCIA, the elect, those who have been chosen, will he still not have justice for them? Will he still, will he be slow to answer them? No, of course not. But it's, I just always find it interesting in our tradition uh, as Catholics that we, we, we don't really pray for that. We don't ask God for justice or for judgment. And I think it's because we're afraid of that coming upon us. And we think that we have to meet some standard first. That's like, oh, I couldn't do that unless I was like perfect. And then I could pray for judgment to get rid of all the sinners around me. And then that's just kind of self-righteous and proud. And you don't want to do that either, right? But if you understand it as the Jews understood it, it was a claiming of God's chosenness 
the fact that we are, as the New Testament says, adopted sons and daughters of God. It was a claiming of that and saying that, Lord, because in that place, being an adopted son or daughter of you, the Father, the King, the Most High, I am living in the midst of the injustice of sin and suffering. Some of it is my doing, some of it is others doing, but I'm praying for justice because one day I want to be rid of all of it. And I can't do it on my own. There's nothing that I can do to tell you that I deserve this or to claim any ownership of it. And so I ask for your mercy and for your justice. That's why those things always should go hand in hand. We should always understand them together. Okay, what do they say? They say, um, justice is God giving us what we do deserve and mercy is God giving us what we don't deserve. And we can understand them better when they are together. Yes? So the Jewish people, their understanding of sin and their perspective of it must have been very different than the way we see it now. Yeah, and, and to be fair, also, we see in Scripture often criticism toward those uh, in the Jewish like religious hierarchy that thought simply because they were Jewish, they were good, even if they were not following the law, like the Pharisees, you know, even if they were learning the law and preaching it but not following it themselves. And so they had their own struggles with that mentality. But this, there's a great book by C.S. Lewis called Reflections on the Psalms. He has a whole chapter on judgment. And it's all about how this theme permeates all of the Psalms, that this is something they were constantly praying for, was the justice and the judgment of God. Super interesting to me. Other uh, questions, thoughts? Yeah. Um, I thought it was interesting because when I kind of saw it, I kind of saw it almost as like the oxymoron kind of comparison between mm -hmm. the who the judge is and who he is like as a person and mm -hmm. why he did what he did. Yeah. Obviously out of his own selfish reasons. Mm -hmm. Kind of goes as an example of um, everybody can kind of do something that benefits them. Mm -hmm. Everyone naturally does. But where your real heart is, you know, yeah. not out of, oh, I'm just going to do it because this person keeps bothering me and it's going to be better for me after. Yeah. But having, you know, faith and actually doing it out of your own goodness and desire, mm. you know, and not for yourself, but for the other person. Yeah. You know, I think it's, um, especially when it's, at the very end, it says, you know, who, like, when the Son of Man does come, who is going to have faith? Mm -hmm. Not, like, the judge, because it looked like it was good because he, he helped her out, mm -hmm. but it wasn't out of his, you know, goodness. Yeah, it was out of self-preservation. Exactly. So yeah. I thought that was just, like, that kind of stood out to me immediately, and I was like... Yeah. Yeah, yeah thank you for that, because I think oftentimes, if we're really honest with ourselves, if we ask, like, why do I worship God? Why do I pray? Part of us may have to admit it's out of self-preservation. I don't want to end up in the bad place, right? So it's as I often say, there's a difference between trying not to go to hell and trying to get to heaven. One is doing the bare minimum so you don't mess up. And one is striving for sainthood, racing the race, fighting the good fight, using the analogies that St. Paul uses. And there are vastly different approaches to worshiping God. And an answer to, like, why, why would I pray? Why would I worship God? An answer is because it is just. Justice is giving someone what they are due, right? And God, more than anyone, anything in this world, is due our worship. 
He's given us everything, absolutely everything. The only thing you and I can claim ownership of is our sin, our mistakes. Those are the things that are ours. Everything else in our life is from him. It's a blessing from him. I mean, he's willing us into existence at every single moment. If he forgot about you for a millisecond, you would cease to exist. Like everything good in your life, the fact that you are alive right now with breath in your lungs, regardless of the status of your health, your finances, your career, your relationships, whatever, God is still sustaining you and loving you into existence right now. And so we can claim ownership of none of that. Only our sin. And that's how good God is. And so why do we pray? Well, because God is due his worship. Why do we go to Mass? Because God, it's the just thing to do. God is due his worship. He gave his life for us. And so we come together to become one with again, that original sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. It's a representation of the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus on the cross every time we're at Mass. There's the analogy that Matthew Kelly uses in his book, Rediscovering Catholicism, I think, when he talks about, um, it's very poignant now, he wrote this before the pandemic, but he's like, imagine that there's a worldwide epidemic and it affects everyone. And all of a sudden, everyone is infected, everyone is dying, and everyone has to go to the hospital and get tested to see who has clean blood to make an antidote. And finally, they call the name and you find out it's the name of your son. Your son has clean blood. And when they call you in and you have to sign a consent form where it says how much blood is to be taken, there's no amount written because they're going to need all of it. And so Matthew Kelly says, well, what would you do in that situation? And he says, well, you do the only thing you can do. You have to sign the form because either everyone's going to die or only your son. And morally, you know, even though it'd be the most painful, most awful thing to have to do, what else could you do? But then he says, and the next week they hold a memorial service for your son. And some people don't bother to show up. Some people walk in late. Some people come in their PJs. Some people are asking, when is this going to be over? Why isn't this more entertaining? Why am I so bored? What would you want to say to them? And then he says, what do you think God wants to say to us every week at Mass when we act the same way? That is why we pray. That is why we worship God. Because that is the justice due to him. It is just to do that. It's not just out of self-preservation like the judge does. And isn't it a really ridiculous reason that he gives, right? He's like, well, this lady keeps bothering me, and I'm afraid that she's going to strike me. Okay, homie, you're a judge. This lady's a poor widow with no one in her family. Okay, she doesn't even have a male escort, like a male son or heir, to present her case to the judge, which would be typical at this time. She has to go do it in her, herself, which means she is totally destitute, totally without support. No one is paying for her, or she's probably resorted to begging or some other means to get money. And someone has cheated her out in some way, and she's trying to get justice for herself. And this magistrate's probably not a Jewish judge, because Jewish courts uh, were convened with three judges. And there was a judge appointed by the plaintiff, there was a judge appointed by the defendant, and there was a judge that was meant to be appointed that was impartial by the court so that they could, the three of them, collectively arrive at the most fair decision in an unbiased way. But because only one judge is mentioned here, it's probably a Roman magistrate. And Rome was not, you know, the, the most just or most religiously appropriate of organizations, right? So imagine someone with that much power and influence and this lowly little widow with absolutely no you know, ability to support herself. And he's like, I'm afraid she's going to hit me. 
Like, dude, like you can tell how much being unjust, how much sin has corrupted his ability to be a man or a judge or to exercise justice whatsoever. He's wimping out in the like most ridiculous of circumstances. I'm afraid this tiny old widow woman is going to hit me. And that's how completely destitute sin, what sin can do to us. And when we're so concerned of self-preservation, we get so insecure. We get afraid of all these little things. Coming back to that approach to our faith. Is that really how I am living out my faith just so I don't go to hell? Just all these insecurities, I got to make sure I'm doing this prayer and not being, and being over-scrupulous about this or that so I don't do the wrong thing and I don't end up in the bad place. Or am I living in such a way that I'm living into the mission that God has called me? Living into that mission of justice. Yeah. I just had the brief translation thing that said, less perpetually coming, she may plague. Less perpetually coming, she may what? Plague me. Plague me, yes, yeah. I think in in the translation I looked at, where's the word that I wrote? Um, Exhaust me. Yeah, or, you know, bewilder me, things like that. You know, just tire me out. Um, but the literal, uh, in the literal Greek, it means like to give me a black eye. Like that's what it literally means. But when you are very tired and your eyes droop, it doesn't look like you have a black eye. So it could be an anachronism from that time, like a, you know, just kind of a saying that she wasn't actually going to deck him. I, I just like that image though. I've, if anyone is like a, a sacred artist out there, someone could paint me a picture of the widow like mid right hook to this judge would be totally epic. I would put that like above a fireplace in a heartbeat, okay? So someone make my dreams come true. That would be great. I'll just keep praying for it, and if I'm persistent, God will give it to me, right? Um, so yeah, interesting. Yeah, George. I, I just got a couple things here where one where the, uh, the, the widow says, uh, render a just decision for me against my adversary. Mm-hmm. Quote, quote, against. And that word sounds strange to me. You know, it's mm-hmm. kind of like render, it's not render a just decision, it's render a just decision, but it better be for me, you know. Type yes. Of yeah. And then, and then the other thing is over here where it says at the end of the at the end of the reading, I tell you, he will see to it that justice is done for them speedily. And then I think about that in terms of speedily meaning God's time or our time. Mm. Don't know what to say about that. Yeah, yeah. Like there's that uh, that famous um, I don't know if it's a joke, but it's like a turn of phrase where someone comes to God and says, um, you know, God, give me give me a a million dollars, and God says, like, don't you know, like a million dollars is but a penny to me, and and a, and a million years is but a second, and so the guy says, okay, well, give me a penny. And he says, okay, hold on a second. <laughs> you know, so we don't know. You know, we don't know. In terms of that time, but speedily, I think, was an encouraging word meant for the audience Luke was writing to, awaiting the justice of God to come to relieve them from the persecution that they were experiencing from Rome. Um, but that word against that you pointed out, I think that's probably because it would be clear to the reader that the widow was, it would be completely unlikely in most circumstances that the widow would be at fault. Uh, and we have that all over the Old Testament, I'll read you a few passages. All over the Old Testament, um, protection that is uh, demanded in the Torah for those who are widows. This is in Exodus 22. Uh, You shall not wrong any widow or orphan. 
If ever you wrong them and they cry out to me, I will surely listen to their cry. My wrath will flare up and I will kill you with the sword. Then your own wives will be widows and your children orphans. Pretty spicy things from the Lord, as I hear in, the, in Deuteronomy, okay? And then we have some characterization of how God uh, loves widows. This is from the book of Sirach in verse 30, uh, chapter 35, starting in verse 15. God is a God of justice who shows no partiality. He shows no partiality to the weak, but hears the grievance of the oppressed. And widows were considered one of the most vulnerable of society. Women didn't work for, for money at this time. They relied on the income of their husbands. If their husband died, they relied on the income or the support of their children. And again, because this widow is presenting her own case to the judge, that means there is no one in her family to advocate for her or to escort her to the judge, which means she's totally alone. Here's one more from Deuteronomy 10 uh, in verse, let's see, Oh my gosh, these numbers are so small. 17, for the Lord your God is the God of gods, the Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who has no favorites, accepts no bribes, who executes justice for the orphan and the widow and loves the resident alien, giving them food and clothing. And so in the Old Testament, when judges were appointed by Moses, elders in the community to render just decisions, they were meant to behave in the same way. This is in Deuteronomy 1. I charged your judges at that time, listen to the complaints among your relatives and administer true justice to both parties, even if one of them is a resident alien. In rendering justice, do not consider who a person is. Give ear to the lowly and to the great alike, fearing no one, for the judgment is God's. So this is how judges were meant to behave. And this is what every Jewish person knew. And so that would have been particularly heinous as Jesus is saying this parable in the story for those listening, especially, remember, Pharisees are in the audience. They would have immediately known that this judge was not doing what they were supposed to be doing, that the widow deserved justice. It was obvious that she had been wronged in some way, whoever this adversary is, whatever the situation was. Um, but the opposite should be happening, and that the judge was clearly at fault, not only for not rendering justice, but also for not offering any support himself to this person who was totally destitute. And it was provided for in the Torah that the community would support and provide for. Other questions, thoughts? Yeah, Michael. Um, I really believe in mental prayer and scriptures like these reinforce my belief. Mm -hmm. Every time I pray from the church, Mental prayer has always brought me back to God one way or another. Mm -hmm. So I'm a, a basic example isn't trying to come up with things to say to God, but trying to bring my mind to God. So I'm trying to be Catholic, so I'm relying on Mary. I'm saying Mary all day long, Mary, Mary. Mm -hmm. So I'm listening to you, trying to bring my mind to God. And uh, again, that has helped bring me out of every fallacy I've ever fallen into, every, every pit I've ever fallen into. And some advice when doing this is try not to pray in a way where you get something from God that doesn't go well. Mm. <laughs> yeah. So always pray trying to be in relationship with God. That's why it's Mary and Mary long. Or I try to pray if I have enough mental space like I'm driving, I can pray the actual Hail Mary yeah. over and over again. And then God's like, well, I'm pray Rosie. I'm like, stop it, God. <laughs> I'll get there. I'll get there. Yeah. Absolutely, though. I think you have you have the absolute right mentality. I mean, I think about my relationship with my wife, right? And if I'm thinking about, okay, I want to be persistent in being a good husband to my wife, 
That wouldn't then result in, all right, next time we're together, we should probably talk about our budget and we should probably, you know, I'll think of some conversation starters to really just make sure that like we're getting this going and plan all of the things I'm going to say to her. Because what it really means to love and be present to my wife is simply to be present to her, to present myself to her. And that's what we do in adoration, right? In the chapel, we bring ourselves into the presence of God, not with a laundry list of things. Now you can do things obviously in adoration that help you pray, but we have to be very cautious. If we come to God in prayer with a laundry list, we have to think about how that would go in any other human relationship. You know, it would just be very awkward, very stale, very forced. And it was like I hadn't had coffee with a friend for a while and be like, pull out this list, you know. All right, here's everything that's happened in my life that I think you really need to know. I kept a diary of it just for you. And I'm just going to read it to you and you're just going to listen to it. I mean, I, if I were that friend, I'd be like, okay, this person's got like two minutes until I'm out of here. You know, like, it's just, you know, so there's a difference, you know. And it doesn't mean you don't update God, you know. There's, there's kind of a way of, I think, doing something like the examine or talking about your day. Like, all right, God. Um, this is what I've got going on today, and I just want to invite you into it. That's your, you're presenting yourself to God, as Michael said, instead of presenting a bunch of requests or prayers to God. It reminds me of the adage, if every uh, one of your prayers was answered, would anyone's life change but yours? If every single one of your prayers was answered, would anyone's life change but yours? That can really illuminate if we've been too self-focused in prayer, too concerned with the the to-do list in prayer, instead of just really bringing our lives, ourselves, the needs of those around us to prayer before God. Yeah. Um, hi, Hi. Very nice to meet you. I'm Matt. Nice to meet you. Um, yeah, I, I believe the Bible talks about persistence. And like, if, we, if we are persistent with God, you know, that, that, that we should be you know, wanting to answer our prayers. Yeah. And um, like also for me, it... It can't like we want to develop that relationship with God, mm -hmm. but um, for me that is a very big struggle because I had a difficult father. So when I like try to have a relationship with God, I'm always like, oh, I need to fix it myself. Like mm -hmm. I need to do because that's that was like my upbringing, you know. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't, it's not like oh, I'm gonna go to my dad if I have this or whatever because I didn't, you know. Mm -hmm. And so, um, but that's something like a personal thing that I have to work on. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people do. You know, oh, yeah. No, we have a good father. And, how, you know, the Bible talks about how much, um, you know, your own, you know, it says your your own father would want to give to you, like how much God wants to give to you, mm -hmm. like his, his children, you know. So I have to remember that and like, oh, wait, you know, God wants good things for me, you know, so. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting that as we grow into the faith, we kind of have to learn how to be children again. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why Jesus says, like, Unless you receive the kingdom of God as these little ones, you know, you have no inheritance in me. You know, because he's trying to teach us. Like, that is the way in which you understand best what this relationship looks like. You know, but because we live in an imperfect world, we're all broken, messy people. Like, all those, you know, no one had perfect parents, you know. Um, and we all, I think, apply the idiosyncrasies of our family of origin to our images of God. And that takes time to heal. Um, well, what I really love about that is, as a Christian is that we have a trinity. So that, you know, if, if God the Father's not doing it for me because, you know, I can't relate to that, you know, Holy Spirit, you know, all right, let's go. You know, that's, I have no preconceived childhood origin wounds about the Holy Spirit. That wasn't in my house, you know, so I can go to the Holy Spirit or Jesus as my brother, my savior, my friend. Like, that's, that's a really beautiful thing. 
about um, you know having this both and nature to Catholicism and Christianity is that we can approach God in so many different ways. And where uh, a door closes, God opens a window. He finds another way to reach out to us and another way to reach out to us. But he also desires for those wounds that prevent us from encountering him as children or as he desires us to. He provides ways for those to be healed as well. But those, that takes time. and It's difficult work. And sometimes we get to the end of our life and those things are never healed. And that's okay because we have other ways we can encounter God. And they won't be healed until purgatory, you know, until we enter the gates of heaven. But... Um, that's, I think, why this challenge to be persistent in prayer is so important. Because, I don't know, if you're just ever around kids, like if there's any word that I could use to describe my children, it's persistent, like relentless, relentless. My son right now, super into watching these really terribly animated truck videos on YouTube about like harvesters and, um, and excavators and bulldozers building different things. They're the worst made videos I think I've ever seen in my life. I won't say the channel because I don't want to, not that they're watching, but I don't want to offend anybody. But but we watched them. Yeah, yeah, they were watching my kids last night. So they know, I probably watched like five of them. So but anyways, they're so, they're so, so bad. Like in the, just the, I'm analyzing them, you know, and critiquing how bad they are. But I got home today and from work, right before, it was maybe an hour before dinner, and my son came, you know, greeted me at the door. He was like, truck? <laughs> and I was like, you want to watch a truck video? And he's like, yeah, I'll be. And he, I had him up, and I was like, okay, I'm going to make myself some food. He's like, no, truck. I was like, okay, just wait one minute. Truck now. <laughs> truck now. I'm like, okay, just wait a minute. Truck! And it's just like, dude, do you not get it? Like, it's going to happen in just like a minute. I just need to get a plate of food. You know, and then I was like, all right, I'm just going to put it on now because then he won't bother me anymore. You know, um, I was kind of like the unjust judge in that situation. I was like, I don't want to get hit. I don't want anything to happen. Just I'm going to put on the dang truck video. But it's, it's true. Like children, they don't understand like those limitations, those social norms that are like, OK, how do I appropriately ask for this in a professional way? And, you know, like all the things we have to learn to navigate in the workplace and in life. They just they want what they want and they do not stop asking for it. And even if they know the answer is no, they will throw themselves on the floor in complete desperation and panic to communicate how desperately they need truck videos or whatever it is, you know. Um, and I think there's something to that, you know. I think having the mentality of a child and knowing, like, you know, I, I can bring this before you, God, like, unfiltered, unabashed, like, completely unhinged even if I need to. And bring it before you, Lord, and the, the Lord will receive it. The Lord will receive it. It doesn't mean he's going to answer it in the right way, but his answer will come speedily. And it will be a just answer, meaning it will be what we are due, what we deserve, what is for our greatest possible good in that moment. But yeah, but there is a benefit to us being persistent. And my, what I love about that is as frustrating as it can be at times, is that my children know that they can come to me and ask for things, ask for what they need. They're not afraid to do that. They're not even afraid to attempt to torture me to get what they need. You know, and that I think is something that children can teach us is that we don't need to be afraid to ask for those things from God, which is seems very simple. But in a culture where it's very inappropriate, it seems unspokenly inappropriate to ask for help, to be vulnerable, to say, oh, I don't know how to do this, like in the workplace. You know, those things are all kind of like, oh, no, just fake it until you make it, you know, just lie and say, you know how to do it. You'll figure it out later. 
You know, I see so many YouTube videos where they're like, here's how I just faked my way through work for a month until I figured out what my job was. And you're just like, how is this? Just ask, you know, what are you doing? But we, we just, we don't do that. It's totally averse to the way that we're brought up or we're told how, what it looks like to be successful. And we apply that to our faith. And that's, that's what God is saying here is what you don't need to do. Being persistent in prayer is not so much about asking for something so much that God will bend his will to ours, but it's about knowing that no matter the circumstances, no matter the day, the time, the emotion, how, no matter how big or small the request, you can always bring it to God. And he will always be there. Imagine like God is like water, but prayer is like the faucet. And when you turn the faucet on, if everything's working properly, the water comes right out. It's not like you turn the faucet on and you're like, all right, we got to wait 10 minutes until it gets from whatever lake it's coming from to our house. Like, no, it's immediate. God is always right there as a loving parent, ready to intervene, ready to protect, ready to provide. But prayer is just the faucet. And the more persistently we go to that, the more easily it will be for us to learn that's where the water is. That's where God is. I saw a hand up in the back. Yeah. So at the beginning it says um, that they might always, um, always to pray and not to be Always to pray and not to be Yeah. So in the think God just wants us. That's all. Because, yeah. I mean, all the time. Mm -hmm. And that's why, you know, it really couldn't say pray without ceasing. Mm -hmm. Just um, communication is prayer. Yeah. So, was a reflection of Mother Teresa that Jesus, when he says that, is expressing his thirst for us, his desire for us. Yeah. Yeah. The same thing is true for my kids. You know, when they run up to me, they're like, dad, 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 I need this. I need this. I need this. I'm not like, oh my gosh, I wish you weren't around. You know, like, no, that would be awful. You know, but sometimes we have that, you know, idea of God, like, God, I just really want this, please. You know, I'll do these things. You know, we have this kind of like, Again, we're fearing the judgment. We're fearing the justice. We're asking for the mercy on the defensive. We want to approach him in a right way. But no. Like there's no, when, you're, when my children come to me, there's no wrong way for them to approach me that would cause me not to love them or to be like, you know what, I'm just, I just decided I'm not going to provide for you anymore. So you're just going to cook your own meals today. That wasn't the right way to ask, young lady. You know, of course not. So, yeah. You know, I, I feel like so many of us, and I don't know if it's considered idolatry, but we're putting so many things before God. Like, you know, especially the phone and messaging, and it's just like constant messages coming through, mm -hmm. you know, da da da, da. And, um, oh my gosh, like, how much of this time, you know, going back and forth that we can be spending on the prayer with God, and we made it this, I mean, if you look at it, can this be idolatry? Because, I mean, oh, yeah. you're putting this in front of God, like, you should be spending more time with God, you know? Mm -hmm. 
And um, I think it's a really a problem today. But so many things, you know, like radio, TV, like spending hours in front of these things. And, you know, it just like the more you get into, you know, practicing our faith. And like, I think God brings this into your conscience. Mm-hmm. And it's like, just if I'm obedient, like even if, you know, like in Matthew 25, how we need to serve the poor. Mm-hmm. And, and the Protestants and They'll always, you know, talk about, oh, you know, being saved by grace and this and that. But, gosh, Matthew 25 is pretty clear to me, you know, like, we need to be doing these things. And, you know, God will separate the goats and the sheep, you know. So we are called for these things. And in doing, you know, being obedient, I, this changes my heart. Yeah. You know, and then all of a sudden, like, you know, God's, you know, um, pouring out his wisdom and his love. And, you know, I'm changing, you know. So, the first words of Jesus in the Bible are about his obedience to you know, God's Father when he was Mary and Joseph were looking for him, he's in the temple, mm-hmm. don't you know I'm going about my father's business? So it's you know even if you don't always want to do these things, like when you do it, you know, you God transforms you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think it's so I mean, gosh, and then you need to get off the phone. Yeah, I don't think there's any more convicting tool than the um, screen tracking app on your phone. Like if you think you don't have enough time to pray, go figure out how to find that on your phone and then see how much time your phone has recorded you actually being on your phone and it will shock you. Yeah. And you can actually program it to be like, okay, don't work for me during these times. And, you know, I've said this before and I'll say it again, like, I keep hearing this over and over and over. In fact, Bishop Barron just did a podcast about this like today, about the benefit of a holy hour. And that if you're not, if you don't have a holy hour as part of your week, then are you really praying? Do you really have a prayer life? Are you really setting that time aside intentionally with God? It's like if I never had intentional time with my wife, our marriage would suffer. If I couldn't take an hour of my week just to be present to my wife and to allow us to cultivate our own relationship, our love, apart from all the other responsibilities that we have, apart from chatting about the budget or saying, hey, that thing above the sink is broken. Can you fix it? You know, or whatever it is. But actually just being together, and that relationship will suffer. And our relationship with God is no different. So are we prioritizing that time? Persistence in prayer is not about asking over and over and over again. It's about over and over and over again, presenting ourselves before God as his children and trusting that he will provide. That is what changes everything doesn't matter what we ask for. really doesn't because we know no matter what, when we come to God in faith, he's going to provide for the things that we need. My favorite verse is Romans 8, 28. All things work for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. All things work for good. He's already doing it, already working for good. Whether you ask for it or not, whether you pray for it every day or you haven't prayed for it once, he's still trying to bring about that good in your life. Alan, I'll let you be the last. Said, um, I feel as far as bringing in the devil, as far as what she was saying is that we are conditioned of this world to be so busy, mm-hmm. and then to be successful, you have this, you know, you have this, you have, you know, this, you have children, and you know they got to be involved in this, and you got to be this, and you, and you call it what you want, keep up with the Joneses. We just almost program. I think the devil kind of like kind of loves that because. Oh yeah. Keeps thinking like, oh no, no, no you're doing good, you're doing good, and then before you know it, like you're saying, you don't have much time. How much time mm-hmm. did you spend in prayer this week? Did you did you pass up the Bible study? Did you, you know, 
Maybe not go to mass. You know what I'm saying is it's just it's so evil. You know what I'm saying? You just get going, going. Yeah. I think in a, in a roundabout way, that's kind of a deceptive way that the evil one's working on us. That oh yeah. You just before you know, well, you're how did how did you slip away from the church? I don't yeah. Know, I, was, I was busy. I was raising kids. I didn't you know. Yeah. And it's. And even within the church too, like C.S. Lewis in Screw Tape Letters, you know, he writes. It's, it's this an imaginative, you know, experience of him writing letters as if it's a, a, a senior demon writing to a junior demon about how to tempt humanity. And what happens is the patient, uh, who's a human, who's you know that he's trying to tempt and get to hell, this demon, uh, becomes Christian. And the senior demon, um, Screw Tape, said, or is it Wormwood? I can't remember which who's who. Screw Tape is the older one. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Screw tape says to Wormwood. He says, "You know, this isn't necessarily a bad thing, because you can busy the patient with all of the little details of ministry and get them very involved and burnt down." Paraphrasing here, get them very involved and burnt out and help them to lose sight of what it's all about. And so, even within the church, distractions are paramount, and the devil is at work in those things. And so, it's up to us in that persistence to keep our eyes fixed on what is most important, what matters most, what matters least. All these little things that we busy ourselves with, I have to constantly ask myself, like, okay, if I don't do this, is someone going to die? And 99.9% .9 of the time, the answer is no. If I don't meet this deadline, if I don't get to work on time, if I miss that meeting, someone is really, is the world going to be altered in any significant way? No, it's not. So, just, all right, Lord. Like, one of my most favorite prayers that I pray constantly is, Lord, I pray that I would not be in a hurry. Because most, most mistakes, bad things, bad decisions happen when you're in a hurry. And so I think that's an important thing for us. So we have to close. We're at the end of our time. But I think for us this week to really consider um, not only the quantity of our prayer, but the quality of our prayer. I'm reminded of the words of St. Francis de Sales where he said, everyone should be praying 30 minutes a day. Unless you are busy, then you should be praying an hour a day. Uh, and so we can take that to heart in our own prayer this week. So let's pray. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for this convicting challenge and reminder to constantly be before you as your children, for you are a loving Father who provides for his children. And so we pray, God, that we would be persistent. We would nag you and frustrate you with our endless requests, not for our own selfish reasons or for our own uh, desires for things and more things that will busy our lives or bring noise into our lives, but that we would constantly come before you as children who trust in their Father to provide everything that is good. And so we pray, God, that we would just have that complete surrender and willingness to let go of all the things in our life and know that you'll provide as children rely on their parents without question. And so we pray uh, in thanksgiving for that, Lord, and that we would have that trust in our prayer as we go throughout the course of this coming week. And as we hear this reading proclaimed again on Sunday, allow it to convict us anew and we thank you, Lord, for the gift of this time and community until we gather again next week. Bless us each. We pray all of this in your most precious name, Jesus. Amen. In the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Have a